0: Welcome back to Season 2 of Everyday Holiness, a Faith Indie podcast brought to you by the Notre Dame Alumni Association. This is Dan Allen, Associate Director of Spirituality and Service. I'm pleased to be joined this week by Ron and Beth Grizzoli, who both work here on campus and are married to one another. Beth is an 87 and 90 grad of the university and is a producer and director of multimedia services in our university marketing and communications department. And Ron is an assistant director in student activities working in the Duncan Student Center. So welcome, both of you, to the podcast. Thanks for having us.
1: Thanks, Dan. Always good to chat with you.
0: So let's begin by introducing yourself to the audience, just a bit about your background and who you are. Beth, would you start us off?
1: Sure. I come from a very large Catholic family that moved from the East Coast. My parents are from Philadelphia and Washington, D.C., and most of my family was born and raised there, but we did move to Indiana when I was very young. I'm the youngest of 10 kids, okay. which is always makes for a delightful conversation starter. <laughs> Lots of stories growing up. So I'm from a large Catholic family, and Ron would tell you he's from a large Catholic family too, but I'll let you tell How many you have. Well, I
2: thought I was from a large Catholic family until I met you (laughs) with your nine other siblings. I am one of five. I'm born and raised in New Orleans, Louisiana, lived in New Orleans for my entire life until I met Beth, and that's the first time I had moved away.
0: Mm -hmm. Great, great. Well, regardless of the debate of how many is large enough, it sounds like you both had a similar background, and I imagine that that uh, was important to you as you got to know one another, some aspects of both of your upbringing that you felt like accentuated your relationship as you got to know one another?
1: Definitely. I was really lucky in that both of my parents were very devoted to their faith and and devoted to exploring it and making it alive for our whole family on a daily basis. They were secular Franciscans. And so we talked about faith issues regularly in our family. And, you know, to this day, pretty much our whole family is still a practicing Catholic, which mm-hmm. is, I guess, surprising um, in a lot of ways. So the way I met Ron was really interesting. I was actually in graduate school at Notre Dame, and I took one course down at Loyola, New Orleans, mm-hmm. and he was basically the TA in the course. and. I saw him, but when I really happened to notice him was when we had a prayer service as a break there at Loyola, and he showed up. So I thought that was really nice.
2: (laughs) How about for you, Ron? Similarly, um, I, both of my parents were practicing Catholics. We were raised Catholic. We went to, to Mass and, and, and participated in the sacraments. I went to Catholic grade school, elementary school, high school, and then like Beth said, I went to Loyola University. I went to a Jesuit high school, went to Loyola University, and then came back full circle to Notre Dame now.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, I feel like my education has kind of come all the way around.
2: Uh, started (laughs) at a Holy Cross grade school and then uh, worked my way back to the University of Notre Dame.
0: Yeah, a lot of Catholic and Holy Cross elements there in New Orleans as well as here in South Bend, so familiarity there. So what about that decision to go to college? Could you each tell us how that discernment happened when you were thinking about what's the best place for me to go to college and what I might study.
2: So my decision to go to a Catholic college wasn't necessarily because Loyola University was a Catholic college. It was first and foremost, a college that was local to New Orleans and excelled in the area that I wanted to study, which was broadcast communications. Uh But before I got to college, right as I started college, my family was rocked by The fact that in May of 1985, my older brother, my older sibling, Randy, died tragically uh, in a tragic accident. And then just a few months later, my father passed within the same year. So at that point, all of my other older siblings had moved away from the house. Some were married. Actually, at that point, all of them were married. Randy and I were the only ones that were not married. So it was just my mom and me at home. And I didn't feel that that was a great time to leave Mm -hmm. uh, my mother, to leave home. So that kind of solidified the fact that I I wanted to go to Loyola University right here in town. It was more or less a community situation where I came back and forth, but stayed at home. Fast forward three or four years, I met Beth in the summer of, help? 1988.
1: 1988, (laughs) thank you.
2: And and as she mentioned a minute ago, it was a summer class, the Institute for Religious Communications. You were working for Bishop Darcy in the Diocese of Fort Wayne, South Bend. You came down
0: to New Orleans for that class, and I was a TA. Right. I
1: was getting my master's in communications at the time.
0: Yeah. So I can't imagine what that must have been like for you, Ron, that all of a sudden you had two significant holes in your family where... It sounds like you felt like you had to fill a lot of that because you were the one who was left, and at the time, with the least amount of other commitments to be there for your mom. So I imagine that shaped you quite a bit in those years. It really did. It
2: was definitely a trying time. I'd like to be able to say that I relied on faith, but quite frankly and honestly, it shook my faith. And for a while there, and, and quite ironically, up until... The point where I met Beth at that prayer service, I had pretty much moved away from the church for mm. a couple of years. I mm. had just decided that I was angry with God. I had stopped going to mass. I don't know that I ever. i never disbelieved in God, Uh-oh. but I was just angry with him. I was very angry and and did not want to participate. And we go back to this now. It was when I met Beth, and then when I had kind of laid eyes on her and decided that this might be someone that I would like to pursue. Mm. That that's what led me to that to that prayer service, and and I'll tell you to this day, it was God leading me back and Mm. and bringing me back in, because just knowing Beth now and knowing her family and and knowing her at that time, just witnessing the way that she practiced and lived her faith, I really did feel that it was God pulling me back into the faith.
0: Yeah, that's beautiful. Beth, when did you come to know about this aspect of Ron, and what was your response to that?
1: So it's funny that you should ask that, because We ended up working on a project together. He was the advisor on my project there. It was an intense 10-day course. And so we finished early, you with my group. It was a long, it was hot. I realized how hot it was in New Orleans that week. And I was living in a dorm with no washer or dryer and no uh, air-conditioned car. I was walking everywhere. And uh, we finished and he offered, we were all going to go out to celebrate. And uh, I wasn't that interested because I knew I'd have to walk in that sweltering weather. And he said, I have a car with air conditioning. And that sold me. And that sealed, that
0: sealed the deal. <laughs> That's right. Didn't so, no matter what kind of car, air conditioning, it a car just, with air conditioning. I didn't have to
2: walk, and it was not going to sweat. So
1: we joke about that a lot. But I, it, the funny thing was— it was sort of one of these things where you shared with somebody you thought you'd never really see again. Um, You know, it was two ships kind of thing. We were out at a local college bar. We sat up and we sort of ended up telling each other our life stories. And he's a very private person. Mm -hmm. And he told me all about, he was, you know, godfather to his one nephew. And I was asking about his family and he told me brother had, you know, it was the. drowning accident. It Mm -hmm. was very shocking and very traumatic for the family. And then just a few months later, you know, he lost his father also very tragically and shockingly. And I was sitting here listening to him and he seemed so together about all of this. And my heart went out to him and imagined what their family had been through. So um, we sort of connected on that level uh, early on. I really thought this is the end of this. I'm not, I had... (laughs) We still laugh about this. I dated someone pretty seriously all through my time at Notre Dame. Uh And one of the reasons we drifted apart was because he really did leave the Catholic faith. Mm -hmm. And we're still very good friends. I think he's a wonderful person. I really enjoy his company. But I just knew in my life that was going to be a very important part of my marriage and my family. I didn't want to be trying to explain to my children you know why doesn't why do we have to go to church dad doesn't want to go to church yeah. so I just thought this is something that matters to me enough that I want to marry somebody who's gonna help me on the road to heaven yeah. and and help me make my way there and so I, I really wasn't interested in dating anybody at that point and I, this was a you know I was down there for 10 days and I met him and I thought oh this is fun this is great we did our project what a nice guy and I thought that was the end of it lo and behold <laughs> back in the olden days before email and cell phones we struck up a letter writing huh. relationship wrote handwritten and
2: letters before yeah before text before FaceTime we cranked up phone bills oh calling goodness. each other on, on and we were both uh, poor, poor as a church right, mouth students you know. uh, we actually no no, no free minutes long this was long charges, distance yeah. charges on the landline <laughs> and then a box full of which you saved thankfully uh, yeah. all of our letters handwritten letters to each other and then I think I was communications major so I actually sent you some Video tape recording of you talking to me. It was so funny. It was so, it
1: was so not, you know, 80s, how she hung 80s. on through that. I don't know. I'm just, God, um, God is great. But, but it's a really a beautiful way to get to know someone sure. through letters. I mean, you think about the olden days and not being physically present with each other. Mm-hmm. We developed this relationship that was purely intellectual and, and and emotional and spiritual, and it was not physical at all. We felt like we knew everything about each other. Right. And the first time we confessed later, he was coming to visit me. I was scared I wouldn't months recognize later. him in the airport. Yeah. And he said, I was worried the same thing. It was kind of funny. We felt we knew each other so well. Yeah,
2: but, I mean, it was so strange. How many, it was how many months before yeah. I had finally decided to, to fly up there and meet you. It's June to November, sort of. And So I stepped off the plane, and, and this person who I felt like I knew so well I was so unaccustomed to being in your company and, mm-hmm. you know, it was a date and it was just really awkward to <laughs> even like hold hands or anything like It was just... I, right. brought
0: my, I brought my letters. Right. <laughs> right. Just right. give right. me a minute. I'm going to go here in the corner yes. and write a letter to you. So
1: the funny thing is, is we never lived in the same city until we were married. Uh-huh. So now he did end up moving up to South Bend after he graduated, well finished his program. But I lived in Fort Wayne, so we were two hours apart. But
2: Yeah, so when when we first met and, and we were kind of laying out our life stories to each other on that first date, Beth was looking at it like, well, this is nice. I'm here for 10 days. This is a nice guy. And I'm going back to Mishawaka, Indiana and in Fort Wayne, Indiana. You were living in Mishawaka at the time. Just for the um, summer. Yeah, I was looking at it Fort a way. little bit differently. I saw somebody who I was smitten with. And I thought to myself, I am in my last year here, and I know that come... December, I graduated in December, I'll be looking for a job and I had gotten some good advice to to leave New Orleans, to leave that television market, uh-huh. to work somewhere else, g- gather some experience if I wanted to go back to some of the stations that I wanted to be. So I had on my mind that hey, I'm about to move, so where do I want to move? Suddenly, South Bend, Mishawaka, Fort Wayne became really interesting (laughs) to me. There's a media market there. (laughs) Um, There is a media market there, especially a media market that I can gain a lot of experience in a a quick amount of time. So I targeted my search that way. So we were looking at things a little differently.
0: Yeah, Um, yeah. So when did it mesh up and all of a sudden you're talking very seriously about living in the same place and getting married?
1: It took me a little while. It took that a little bit. <laughs> it took I a little convincing. Of, uh, in all Air conditioning was not going to cut it <laughs> yeah, yeah, in that South right. Indiana. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I panicked a little bit when he said he wanted to move up because his entire family lives in New Orleans, yeah. and after they had been through what they'd been through, his family is very close, sure. very tight, very dependent upon each other for support and daily contact. And I felt like, oh my gosh, am I pulling this guy away from his family? and I don't even know if this is gonna work out. So I did panic a little bit. And um, he was very patient and very reassuring through all that. And he said, look, I'm leaving anyway. I wanna to go to a small market, work in a small station to get a lot of experience. I may as well come here. No pressure. Tried it yet? Yeah. That was yeah. a really great conversation to have. And after that, it was all fine, More, you know. Yeah.
2: they
0: almost 30 years later. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh Hard to believe. So take us to your wedding day. I I find it interesting to think about yourselves on your wedding day and what you thought was important or what you thought was gonna happen or the people who were there. And then with the perspective of time, looking back almost 30 years later, can you give us a a juxtaposition of kind of a then and now, the experience of your wedding day and, and how those vows have played out over the course of these years?
1: Well, interestingly, when you're the youngest of a very large family, you have a lot of models to follow. And you learn a lot by watching. And you learn a lot about successes and failures, et cetera, and things like this. So we actually, to this day, we are sponsor couples for engaged couples through our parishes. We started that in New Orleans. So I think we approached our marriage and our wedding. Gosh, in hindsight, we were pretty young, but... Well, well, I was just 25. 25. We 20. I think we were pretty on the ball, actually. We took it very seriously, and you love to tell about how we, we decided to memorize all our vows. Mm-hmm. We did not want to do the repeat after me I
2: state your name right
1: I state your name
0: after the priest please turn um, your microphone off father so, yeah. I exactly
1: I brought it up to Ron to suggest that to see how he'd react and you know to this day you we tell our marriage. I'm couples. so thankful we did
2: that I I was a little reluctant because I tend to be more of a nervous person and I just imagined myself there completely drawing a blank and, yeah but but we did and we got through it. But it was on our first wedding anniversary. Beth and I were out celebrating it. And then I kind of out of the blue I just restated them. Mm-hmm. And first I was a little pleased with myself for having remembered them, but <laughs> I was restating them not from memorization but from experience. And yeah. it was much more personal. And we kind of did it jokingly. But we do it now, not just on anniversaries, but we recite that promise to each other much more frequently than than just once a year. But we do that, whether it's witnessed by a priest or not. It's just uh, it is reiterating the promise to each other.
1: Yeah, truth be told, he surprised the heck out of me on that first anniversary because he repeated them. And I thought to myself, wow, I'm not sure I would have remembered them word for word the way you did. But having been prompted by him, so I said my vows back to you and it became an annual anniversary tradition and then children came along and (laughs) then we started saying them to each other in In front front of our kids kids, and then they got a little bit older and they'd get all embarrassed sort of (laughs) as we did it but you know we're we're trying to model for them you know no marriage is perfect but you you rely on God to get you through the rough times and you're committed to each other that's sort of you know the approach we take with with couples now is right. um, it, you have to have that third party in your partnership, and that third party is the Holy Spirit and God, and mm-hmm. to give you strength. And we really feel right. strongly about we'll that. We'll
2: tell them that. you yeah, we'll tell the, the engaged couple this is not a promise you're going to make to each other just once, right there on the altar, but it's a promise that you're going to make to each other each and every day of your marriage, and it's a journey that you'll walk together. And you promise and you vow that you'll do it together
1: one of our various conversations over the years, I remember we talked about divorce and, and what it was like to grow up with our parents, et cetera. And I remember saying to Ron, I said, you know, I feel so lucky. I never worried for one minute that my parents would get divorced. Mm. I just never did. And now that I'm older, I realize what a gift that is. Mm-hmm. And we decided, you know, we are going to make sure our children never have to worry about that. It would and I did worry point. about
2: that as a as a kid. I mean, growing up, there was some tumultuous, you know, times with mm-hmm. my with my parents, and and I did at a few points think, gosh, I could, I could, my parents could divorce. So this was something that I never wanted my kids to have to worry about.
1: If we'd have an argument in front of them, when they got to the point of understanding a little bit, we just explained to them that we said you know, dad and mom are going to disagree on things, but we want to let you know that we are committed to this. You have friends that are divorced and they're living in, they're going back and forth in houses. You will never have to worry about that. Mm -hmm. You don't ever have to worry about that with us because we are committed that that is not an option for us. Mm -hmm. And I think there's something about verbalizing that out loud and promising your children that and each other that is... Is serious stuff.
2: Yeah, and right. So. And in a time when when the divorce rate is so high, and, and like Beth mentioned, several of them know have friends whose parents sure. have gone through that. Yeah. If there's one thing that I can take off of their mind or off their plate, would be to assure them that your parents have committed to doing whatever, even if we experienced difficulty, that we were going to do whatever we mm-hmm. did needed to do to work it out, to get help or anything like that.
0: Yeah, and re- truly living into those vows each and every day, and I think that's such a Beautiful witness to state them often before each other and before your kids. So let's turn to your children. Tell us about your children and their lives, if you would.
1: Sure. We have three children. We have one in heaven, and we have three living. And let me tell you, God does have a sense of humor. We were surprised by identical twins, (laughs) biggest shock of our life. Uh, No twins in the family, and um, everyone jokes, oh, wouldn't it be funny if we had twins? And then one day a doctor tells you there's more than one, and you think, oh, very funny. <laughs> but
2: we thought, we how many more than one?
1: That <laughs> yeah. was my. I wait, how many? Uh, and he said, I think just two. So um, we did have identical twin girls,
2: Mary, Beth, and Annie.
1: They yeah, you know, they came to, they came so early. They came two months early, and we didn't have names chosen. So we took my name, Elizabeth Ann, and both of our mothers' names, mm-hmm. Mary, and my mother's Genevieve. And so we have Mary Elizabeth and and Anne Genevieve and. We won't lie. It was health-wise a very bumpy start for mm-hmm. them, and emergency delivery, and our daughter Mary Beth had to be ventilated, and they were in the NICU for a while, and then got very, very ill with a virus that's very serious for preemies, and it's, it was RSV. Mm-hmm. So it was it was a was bumpy a couple start. Of sure. It was you know yeah. again. And they we, were
0: your first. That yes. was our first. your first experience of parenthood. So we had no
1: clue what we were doing, the and twins, they were very sick. The, yeah. <laughs> But God got us through and um you know we ended up getting out of the hospital and making our way through that managing two babies like pros i have to say we got yeah. pretty good at it it wasn't long before we noticed significant differences between the two girls mm-hmm. they were clinically identical but um one struggled with developmental mi- milestones and so um we had them evaluated at a year, a little over a year, and our one daughter, Marybeth, was diagnosed with significant developmental delay, mm. and later we had her diagnosed with cerebral palsy. You know, that's been part of our life since the, the, the day they were born. We do have a, a third child. Our, we had a boy, which was really fun to have it um, <laughs> the other gender after having two girls. It was really, really fun. I have fun. to admit,
2: it for, for a while there, I, we, we, didn't know the, we were adamant that we did not want to know the sexes. That is one one of God's true surprises uh-huh. in life, yeah, yeah. and it's, and we wanted to know what they were fun, on the yeah, delay that, really that, they, that they were born. But while Beth was carrying Stephen for a good while there, I was secretly hoping it was going to be another set of twins. How cool would it be to have twin girls? And then if God blessed us with twin boys, still very happy to have a single. At the time. I had a, sp- <laughs> I had a spare hand yeah. when he was a baby to do other things.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So Annie graduated from Notre Dame. And she's now in medical school. And Mary Beth graduated from high school. She was a champion. It was not easy at Mm -hmm. all. Uh, We are not gonna sugarcoat that. (laughs) But we're really proud of her. And she works right here on campus, part-time at the bookstore and uh, here at the alumni office. So she's very proud of her jobs and she's a darn hard worker. So we're lucky that she has a great work ethic. And then our son, Steven, is a senior here at Notre Dame. So.
0: Great. So, I think with any experience of parenthood, there are joys and challenges, but it sounds like you had some unique ones, especially with Mary Beth and her special needs, and even, I would imagine, the comparison with her twin sister to see the differences of how their lives have diverged, but also in the ways that they brought grace to you in unique ways. So could you tell us some about just some of the general the joys and challenges, any stories of things that you remember of the ways that God blessed you as parents through the lives of your kids?
1: You know it's funny. One of the first moments that comes to mind for me is your perspective changes quite drastically when you are very unsure about the physical and intellectual abilities that your child is going to have. And Honestly, I remember most parents are marking all these milestones, and I'll never forget the day she walked. We weren't sure she'd ever walk. And the day she walked, you and I, we felt like we won the lottery. Mm -hmm. I mean, it could not have been. We were so excited. Your life changes in that you appreciate things that you would most likely have taken for granted in a lot of ways.
2: To to say it changes your perspective is, is an
1: understatement. We've been on a long journey. The shock is undeniable and the fear. I think the fear is very real part of parenting a child with significant health challenges and, and developmental challenges. But we, we decided from day one, we turned inward to each other. And I know maybe a lot of people might turn away from each other, but we turned inward and we we would spell each other when we got tired when we got discouraged or when we were afraid we would just be there for each other and when somebody was weak or feeling vulnerable the other one would step up and and we just have really kind of done a balancing act that we've been very blessed that that we've been there for each other we really have been blessed
2: like i couldn't have done it without you i don't i could not have Raised those three children to be the people, the wonderful people that they are today, single-handedly.
1: Likewise, I, I agree. <laughs> and now we're at the point where it takes a bit of a journey. But I feel like God chose us for this. Mm. God chose us for this, and all of our children. We, you worry about everything when you have one child that's taking a lot of extra effort and time. You worry are the others being neglected? Yeah. Is that going to you know impact them? You just. Try to love them all through it. You just pray for strength and pray for wisdom, and you love them all through it. Honestly, I remember in our old parish in New Orleans, our priest would bring all the children up to the altar, and it was Easter, and Mary Beth has just been such a delight. In a lot of ways, she's the first to raise her hand in class. She's she's a joiner. She's a she's very she's a participant. She's not shy, and so in front of the entire congregation, the priest would start asking the children questions. And it was Easter, and one of the questions he asked was, "Well, so where is Jesus now after he died and he was crucified? Where is he now?" And she also has speech impediment. So I'm always concerned people aren't going to understand her. And of Mm. course her arm shoots up in front of the entire very large parish. And God bless Father Ronnie. He calls right on her. And my heart stopped for a moment. And I thought, oh, is he going to understand her? What is she going to say? And her answer at seven years of age was she pointed to her heart and said, he's right here. Mm. (laughs) And I, you know, I nearly welled up because I thought, God knows a whole lot more than I do. Mm -hmm. What was I worried about? Mm -hmm. God knew what she was going to say.
0: Yeah, yeah. it's amazing how in touch children in general can be with God, and then sometimes we can make false assumptions based on someone's outward appearance or seeming intellectual abilities or things to say, who's to say they might not have a closer experience with God without some of the distractions and the worries that we all have. And so I find someone like Mary Beth you know really inspiring in that way. So let's talk about your careers because you both work here on campus now and you talked about the balancing act of parenthood but you're also both working and we know that working at Notre Dame can be a demanding prospect so tell us about your careers and how they've developed here and how you've supported one another in that avenue as well.
2: I think our career journey is, is also one of faith. Beth studied communications, your your graduate degree was in, in communications, uh, mine as well. I had a a mission that I wanted to direct live events, live news, and after we were married, we ended up moving back to New Orleans and, and I worked my way to the CBS affiliate, WWL, in New Orleans where I eventually directed their morning news, the dream job, if you will, uh, where I wanted to be and doing what I wanted to do. And we did that for 18 years.
1: Morning and noon news. Morning
2: and noon news for 18 years and got to do a lot of other things in television. And then Beth was working at a PBS affiliate there in New Orleans as well. And then uh, Hurricane Katrina came along. Mm. Um, When you work in television news, our, our standard routine was i would pack a bag for three days i would have to head into the city we lived about an hour outside of the city i would have to head into the city and get assigned to do whatever we needed to do there at the station or set up an alternate site in a safe location meanwhile leaving my wife and three children to fend for themselves and in the case of hurricane katrina beth evacuated to my brother's house which we thought was going to be more of a safe place and then i got sent to baton rouge presumably for three days. As it happened, the storm tracked towards my brother's house, a little bit closer to where Beth was, so they really felt the brunt of the storm. I got in touch with her a couple of a day or so later after we kind of assessed the damage to the city, and my advice was to take the kids to be with your mom or your sister, move to Indiana. The city would have to would not likely reopen uh, for another month or so. Wow. Um, so she did. Fast forward, we got back together after a month. We got back to our house. Luckily, our house was not damaged significantly. But I think at that point in time, we had decided New Orleans is not necessarily the place where we want to continue to live. Um, Beth's family is from the Indiana and spread out in the Midwest. And we were always kind of torn between where we'll eventually live, and it was just the right time to not be in the city. Our children were of of the age before they got into high school, where we decided if we're going to make a move, this is when we're going to make a move. Mm-hmm. And it was it was it was tough for me to leave my job. It was certainly tough for me to leave my family and my base of friends. I lived in a you know a small world just in the city, New Orleans, where Beth has traveled more around the Midwest, I guess, if you will. So it was a journey of faith. Uh, mm-hmm. It was a big leap of faith, and we started looking for jobs, and we both found jobs. Well, Beth found your job, uh, was offered a job here at the university first, and then by the grace of God, not long after that, I also accepted a position here. But we literally put it in the hands of God, because yeah. for me to pick up stakes and leave the position that was I considered my dream job was definitely a,
1: a leap of faith. When we moved up here, Ron went to get our cars registered at, at the License Bureau. And he's still new to Indiana and lots of things. And they're, they're saying, well, which license plate do you want? And he's like, well, what are my options? And, and they pull up the one. Notre Dame one. And says, and... It says, in God we trust. He goes, oh, heck, we trust in God. Give me that one. And
0: <laughs> this, I'll take two of those.
1: This, yeah. To this day, we, we drive around with those and just laugh.
0: So for you, Beth seeing kind of that sacrifice that Ron made of this dream job, but really it seemed like a family decision. What was your reaction to all that? What was your lived experience of all this upheaval that was happening?
1: This is not an exaggeration when I say, I am grateful every day for the husband I have. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes you just get lucky. You don't always know everything about someone when you get married. and. I I married an incredibly generous and considerate person and He's sitting here probably blushing as I say this, but <laughs> Thanks, I, I don't take that for granted. It was it was difficult. He's he's very thoughtful, and this was a struggle in our marriage from the beginning. We I yeah. lived very far from home yeah. and 1,000 and miles away. It's not a drive you can do in one day. It's very hard to get home. I missed my family incredibly through very sick and trying times with children. You really wanted your mom around, sure. and his family is wonderful and supportive, but it, it was a struggle for us. Right. Um, The distance was a very big struggle for us but you know we worked through it and then when he gave up really his career i mean he's being really pretty modest in his career he he had the number one morning news show in the country Mm -hmm. his station was the number one station in the market and he led this year after year so he gave up a lot for me and for our family and i i really never take it for granted he is a glass is half full guy and i feel very blessed to be married to him, I really do. And,
2: and we we both agree. And and I should have said this from the outset. We're so thankful that God led us to this point because this community that we live in, and this community of Notre Dame where we work, and and our daughter Mary Beth is blessed to work with her special needs, has been the ideal situation mm. uh, for us. And I don't look back. And I think I even just said it to this past weekend when we were talking with the kids and Annie was talking about New Orleans or something. And I, I think I said to her, I was like, I'm, I'm not looking at moving back. I said, I don't think I'll ever live in New Orleans again. This is home. This mm. is absolutely what I consider home here in Indiana.
1: Yeah. Notre Dame has been good for our family. Both of our children who are able to go to college have been able to come here and It's been a wonderful home for Mary Beth as well and for us. So we just feel really blessed. And we both had our share of guilt through our marriage in that one of us had got to be close to our family and the other one didn't. So we, we both had a balance there. And so we know how it feels. We're supportive. And, you know, we're lucky that it's worked out.
0: Yeah. What is it about your jobs that you have now that excites you to get up in the morning and come into work? What are some of the joys that you've experienced in the jobs you have?
1: Well, I work with fantastic people. I I love my team. But one of the projects I get the privilege of working on is the What Would You Fight For campaign. And it is a lot of work. But the people I get to meet, oh my goodness, the people I get to meet through this are some of the most selfless, dedicated, hardworking people. It's just an honor and a privilege to get to know them and tell their stories. And then we do have a significant reach with this campaign. It's in the millions. And so, that is such a privilege because I hear back from people that either learn something, they have a similar challenge, just, you know, recently we did a story on a, on a woman who developed a walker to help people who are having walking issues and, and amputees. We've heard from so many people that said, oh my gosh. I've, I've been looking for something like this or physicians who've said, wow, I think this could really help some of my patients. Mm. And one email, a woman said, I can't believe this. I feel like God sent you to me in the middle of a football game. <laughs> so those kinds of that kind of feedback is just really a gift. You know, if you can help share the word on, on things that will make people's lives better, That's just great. It helps make up for all the headaches, all the people who complain, and there are plenty of them who don't (laughs) like what we do, too. But that's what keeps you going. You know, you make a difference in someone's life and by your work, and it's just very affirming.
0: How about for you, Ron?
2: I get to manage one of the student centers on campus, a place where students come to relax and unwind and share a meal with friends, and, and, and so I get to see them our students at, in their in their more relaxed state. A big part of my job also is to, to manage and coordinate events through our event spaces. So I'll get to walk with them as they kind of navigate the, the logistics of finding a space and what it takes to plan and coordinate an event. So I get to, to really walk with them through that. And the onus is really on the students to, to be the, the ones responsible for that event, but to help them through that and hold their hand, if you will, through it. We just worked with a group uh, that planned an entire conference on campus. So the, the group was trying to navigate spaces in many different buildings and the logistics of coordinating meals and, uh, and things like that in, in our event spaces. And I find that really satisfying.
0: And for those who might be unfamiliar, Duncan Student Center is a relatively new building on campus and a relatively large building. 400,000 square feet. <laughs> <laughs> on the west side of Notre Dame Stadium. But you have been here through that transition from La Fortune Student Center to now La Fortune and Duncan Student Center and the gravitational pull of campus changing. So what have been some of the lessons that you have learned in, in seeing student life change and what have been really some of the most successful things that you've seen that has come out of this new opportunity?
2: Well, it's interesting. When when Duncan opened, we had La Fortune, which has been the mainstay of, of student life on campus. When Duncan opened, I think there were many who were concerned that La Fortune was just going to be vacant and it was mm-hmm. going to be an empty building. And I compared it to water in a bucket. You know, when you shake the water in the bucket, a lot of water ends up on one side, then it kind of sloshes back and forth, and then eventually it, it evens out. And there are those students who their preferences the pace of LaFortune, mm-hmm. and you have students who who really just spend their relaxing time and hang out in LaFortune, and then there are many students that like what what Duncan has to offer. So I think from that aspect in campus life, students have found that balance and have struck that their balance themselves. The difference for me, when I started at the university, I managed Washington Hall, which is a very old facility and, and a relatively quiet facility outside of the events that, that and rehearsals that happened. Moving from, from Washington Hall to Duncan Student Center, where there are things going on from 5.30 in the morning until 2 a.m. Uh, is has been a drastic change. Uh, yeah. Hopefully of, you're of not pace. there.
0: You're not there the whole time. Thankfully not. <laughs> Thankfully not. <laughs> but yeah, very, very busy time on campus. Beth, you talked about the reach that Notre Dame has, and I'm mindful of, and we've been talking with all of our guests this season about the Notre Dame Forum and this idea of Notre Dame trying to respond to the crisis, the abuse crisis in the Catholic Church in a meaningful way to apply scholarship and dialogue on campus. And so we wanted to do that this season on the podcast as well. I'm interested specifically to you both. You talked about the commitment to your vows, the restating of those vows, the sacred trust of parenthood. And and the violation that we all feel collectively, whether we're uh, intimately touched by this or otherwise, of some in the church who, who di- haven't lived up to their vows or haven't kept true to that. So I think the question that many of us are grappling with is, where do we go from here? What do we do maybe as a family to help be a beacon of hope or a light for the church in a way forward. So, would you either of you respond to that how do we as families and and married people possibly help the church find a way forward?
1: Well, I think it's a really hard question. I'll be very honest. I've been through many of the emotions I think most faithful Catholics have been through on this subject. Very angry, very hurt, very shocked and I would say it's safe to say, you know, my faith has not been shaken. I, I don't doubt any of that or I don't question any of that. My faith in, in God has not been shaken. My mm. faith in the, the church, the human institution of That's church, been has been very shaken. Mm-hmm. And maybe not shaken, just disappointed. Yeah. But, you know, it's a human institution. and We know how fallible humans are. We know how fallible, Ron and I both know how fallible we've been. You know, we've, we've made mistakes as parents. We've done things that were hurtful to our children that we would never meant to, you know, not on a scale like that, of course, but uh, people make mistakes and it has to be, it has to be rectified. People have to be held accountable, but I think you have to hang in there and you have to believe in the guidance and the power of God and the Holy Spirit and that we will find a way through this. And I think we should all exercise our voices. I don't think we have to be timid and submissive always to the leaders of our church. We respect them, but I think we have a voice and we need to use that and still very actively use that voice in prayer. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what's going to help us. But I don't have all the answers. Mm -hmm. I, I, I don't. And I mean, we talk about this with our kids. We talk about it as a family. You know, Ron and I look at each other sometimes and just you know, sigh and dismay at things that happen. But I don't think you ever give up the faith. I mean, I can only imagine what the, all the disciples felt like when their, their dear friend Christ was crucified right in front of them and mm. they felt abandoned. You know, they didn't give up the faith. So, mm. you know, we can't either.
2: I don't proclaim to have any answers on the scandal, but all I can do is, is reflect back to my own crisis of faith when I thought that God had turned his back on me, and I, and, and I think about those who have been torn apart and injured by the church scandal, and all I can do is just hope and pray that God leads them back and leads them and lets so many of our priests who were wonderful, shining examples of God's love and God's faith, and, and let, let God bring them, you know, in the light of some of those priests to help, you know, bring us back together.
0: And I think it's important for us to remember is we do still have, even in this time and in this, diff- this challenging period in the church, we do still have really holy people who help lead us, and we're helping each other, imperfect as we all are, find our way towards holiness. And of course, that's the name of this podcast, Everyday Holiness, and it's striking to me to hear some of the seasons of suffering that you have all been through and yet your ability to find hope in those different instances and in the people who are there. So has that been something that you've been able to look back on these different periods and recognize that God's grace was there, that God's grace was in these, the people or the events that were happening? Maybe we couldn't see it at the time, but there was something that was drawing us towards holiness in, in, all, this, in all this time.
1: Absolutely. And I think the older you get, the more perspective you get. But, you know, I do think about some of the darkest times we've been through. I look at now as I know God held our hand and got us through those because, you know, it was not easy. You know, our daughter, I look at her as such a gift and such a vessel of enlightenment to us we mm-hmm. have learned so much through <laughs> marybeth we have learned so much patience neither of us were particularly probably very patient people <laughs> um when I'm we still were working younger on my patience. <laughs> and it has taught us to slow down it has brought us into new communities in our lives that some of the best human beings we've ever known communities of physical therapists and occupational therapists and and speech therapists, and people who genuinely care about helping their brothers and sisters. We've been brought into communities of just wonderful human beings. We together now are starting an initiative here locally where, you know, our work isn't done. We're working to try to establish a large community here in South Bend for more understanding and acceptance and assimilation of people with intellectual disabilities. I think. Everything that's happened in our lives so far, I you know I speak for my own, have, have brought me to this point. I feel like it's all been part of the plan.
2: I agree 100 percent. I, 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 there are many a times when we've been through things and walked through journeys and, and looked back and reflected and realized that God was leading us or God had us by the hand and led us through that. Carried you us. Carried us, right. <laughs> I remember having a conversation with Mary Beth one day and, and she surprised me, helped me helped me remember this, but she said she wouldn't wanna change the way she is. Mm-hmm. I mean, granted, I think life would be easier if perhaps she didn't have speech difficulties sure. and, and, and it would be easier, like l- the simple things in life, but she acknowledges that she is who she is because of her diagnosis of cerebral palsy and we wouldn't be the people we are had you know we not walked that journey.
1: And it's funny, all the worries we had about our other two children, Annie and Steven, about neglecting them or having them see various struggles, et cetera. They've grown to be two of the kindest and, I think, understanding people in their own right just because of what they've grown up with. Mm-hmm. And fortunately, they're both very spiritual. It's fun to be able to have discussions about theologians with your children, it, you know, it sort of blows my mind a little bit when they'll talk about G.K. Chesterton or Stephen will discuss some theological issue with us. We, we just love it. And it's, it's been a real gift.
0: And I think that is largely the point of the Christian story for us is that even the cross can be a gift. And on Good Friday, it doesn't look like much of a gift but in the light of the Easter morning, all of a sudden we see what's happening here. And I think what's so inspiring about your story, both individually and collectively as a married couple, is instead of only seeing the crosses that you've carried as burdens or obstacles towards something else that you were striving after, as you said, in God we trust, where is God leading us and with the perspective of time, have been able to see God has been with us this whole way, even in some of the crosses that are no longer part of our lives. And when the, when the next ones come, we, we can still continue to trust in God to be with us in those as well.
1: Absolutely.
0: Well, thank you, Ron and Beth, for spending some time with us. I know a lot of people are going to be inspired by your story whether they are preparing for marriage or in the midst of marriage or not married at all, I think there's so much here for us to think about. So know of our prayers for your family and our thanks for spending some time with us today.
2: Well, thanks for the opportunity to share some of our experiences.
0: All right. Well, that concludes this episode of Everyday Holiness, a Faith Indie podcast. We thank you for being with us, and we hope to have you next time. Stay tuned for more episodes of this podcast, which will be released through our daily gospel reflection. Of course, you can always sign up for that at faith.nd.edu slash sign up. And until next time, we'll keep you in our prayers.